Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. So we are going to talk about... Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That's it. This is a suggestion that came by way of our wonderful producer, Carolyn Kendrick, who thought that it would be a good idea to put out some counter-programming to reality this week. (laughs) I didn't know this was a Carolyn idea. That makes sense. Yeah, that's... I think Carolyn has made a good choice for all of us. I can't wait to talk about Borat too, but there's like white supremacist and Trump stuff and and we'll have enough of that this week. So can you just remind uh, listeners what Wire Dads is about? Wire Dads is about watching movies that involve dads in some way and talking about our thoughts and feelings about what dads are and can be and how they're represented in the movie of the week. And this week it's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. (laughs) An obvious choice about an inventor dad. (laughs) And I think Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is like the nicest menacing kids movie (laughs) from the 1980s. It's scary. Oh, yeah. Those kids are tiny. So we recorded this. This is our second episode that we recorded. And I haven't heard it since. So I wonder how much of a second episode it sounds like. I bet we're still figuring some stuff out. Oh, yeah. Why did you want to touch this movie? And why do you think that this is a movie that stands out for so many people? Like people are excited that we're covering this movie. Yeah, I am. I That's cool that people are excited about it because I definitely picked it, you know, knowing it's something that a lot of kids grew up with because it's a Disney movie. But just because I was trying to think of who was a dad who I liked, who I had seen in movies that I watched as a kid and a dad who I found to be like not menacing and, you know, kind of sweet, actually. And my immediate thought was Rick Moranis and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And then, of course, watching this again, I was like, oh, this, <laughs> this is a story of a dad who, while extremely well-intentioned and a lovely person, and also, you know, there's so many themes in this movie about masculinity and how it gets in the way of fathers relating to their sons and to kind of speaks for a version of masculinity that is an escape from that, which is, you know, I love about him as a character, Um, but is also someone who just makes terrible mistakes many times in a row and accidentally sweeps his children into a garbage bag, which I had not remembered being such a theme in this movie, how like, you know, it's dangerous to get tiny, but then... if you become tiny, you truly must have a dad who's somehow perceptive enough to be able to to see you instead of sweeping you away. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's about someone who's who's loving and well-intentioned, but is a little bit too much of an absent-minded professor to, you know, show up in the moments when you're tiniest. Yeah. And his, I mean, it's, it, it's also interesting to see a dad who's whose strengths and skills, which are his intellect and his ability to invent things clearly, they don't help him at all in this scenario. Like, which is, a, which is an interesting conundrum. <laughs> Actually, like, his, you know, his hyper-focus might have something to do with why he uh, is not able to figure out what happened with his kids, although he eventually puts it together and and relatively quickly. But those skills don't necessarily help him. Like, it's actually his wife's skills that uh, help find their kids and her skills are, I noticed our kids are missing and it's really important. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently Lindy West wrote a, a collection of essays about movies that she loves, but also movies that are bad. 
And this is in there and I have not, I've not read it, but I, I would like to find out what she has to say about this. Mm-hmm. Me too. So one thing that comes up when people suggest we watch this is real life Rick Moranis. And the reason for that is Moranis left Hollywood after sort of a long, a long-ish career, at least a 15, 15 year career in, in the public eye, maybe 20 by this point. And kind of at the top, because he had started off in TV and then was, you know, getting these leading roles and yeah. And he left because he married a uh, makeup artist, Ann Belsky, and they were together for five years. And at uh, age 35, after they had two kids, she died. And he eventually decided to take a break from making movies, which again, like you said, he was on the top of his career in order to devote himself to being a dad to these kids. He said, I'm a single parent. I just found it too difficult to manage raising my kids and doing all the traveling involved in making movies. So I took a break and then essentially the break just continued through his his kid's life. Like Kate Bush. Like exactly, like Kate Bush. Yeah, Rick Moran is Kate Bush. Two peas in a pod. And he says, I have I have absolutely no regrets about doing this whatsoever. My life is wonderful. Why do you think that's a thing that resonates with people? I mean my first thought is that men don't choose children over career very often. And we're kind of in a right <laughs> I notice obvious things sometimes, not usually, but at times. I, I honestly wouldn't have articulated it like that. That's what that's wonderful. Tell me more. But I mean, especially this year, like we're many of the things that have been obvious about America for a long time are like extra super obvious this year. This is like the saw six of years. <laughs> and uh, we're because like, we're way past subtlety. And you know, so much of what's going on is manifesting in these weird articles that are like, if you are working and have a little baby, then try a standing desk and then you can more easily rock your baby while working. And it's like, I don't think this is a solution to what's happening. An article telling people to stand with their babies because that'll just smooth everything out. You know, and just this something that I have thought about this year you know, and this is much broader than the topic of becoming a sole parent to your children after your spouse dies. But what's happening now in a, a very broad sense is that, you know, we are living through, I feel this this kind of disturbance in the force of all the work um, and, you know, a lot of it work by women or by anyone who's working as a sole parent. But if there's, you know, two parents, then somehow mysteriously the female one will often become the primary caregiver, even if both of them are working. Every day we're losing work that could have been done, if not for impossible childcare burdens suddenly becoming impossibler. And that's distressing to me. And also then there's like the lack of sleep, the loss of time to do anything with but you know i i fixate on the finite i guess not just has he made the decision to put his kids before his career but in every quote i can find about it he's just like yeah it was the obvious thing to do it's like so refreshing in that way he's not like so obviously i had to put my career on hold like it seems like there's like not a regret it was like the evident thing to do and, you know, he could have made seven more sequels to this movie, uh, which which I am under the impression he's actually about to make a new sequel <laughs> to this movie. But his kids are uh, full grown now. Yeah. And I also feel like in a way that's one of the things that makes him the perfect movie dad 
for people who grew up with him because he does what the Terminator does. He is perfect and then he vanishes and you don't have to watch him, you know, stick around long enough to get slowly uninvited from the party, you know, anything else like there's, I don't know. Yeah. He went out on top. Like, uh, I can't think of an athlete who did that. I'm sure it's happened. Not in the nineties <laughs> though, in any way I remember, but <laughs> you don't hear about the people who go out on top. I guess OJ Simpson actually retired when he was at the top of his game, but that's not something you really want to cite him for. He did bigger things after. So it's like hard to it's hard to fixate on that. He had a second act. But that sense of a lack of resentment, I mean, I feel like this is also just the, like, even if your dad isn't in movies, like, there will be some kind of tension in so many people's lives that they can recognize where they have a dad who is trained somehow to feel that career and children are at odds with each other and not just in the sense of, the time and the vitality that they both take, but that, you know, childcare is somehow demeaning or that like the prestige of a title is always going to win over a kid. Yeah, thinking about someone who like had this wonderful career, did comedy, got to work in a Howard Ashman musical with a big puppet plant, got to go to Mexico and do this beautiful, like huge blades of grass and bugs practical effects movie. With, with the shrunk down kids, like to sort of to do all of that and then to say, like, I've had a really good ride. People have really embraced me as someone who they welcome into their lives, which is amazing. And now I'm going to be a dad. One of our listeners whose name is Kristen Noreen said that Rick Moranis is the dad that always loves you. He usually needs to have faith in himself. He's not the dad that's mean to you and has to learn to love you. He already does. So nice. And also Rick Moranis and Little Shop of Horrors is so integral to my understanding of him. Because that was also a, a movie that's like scary for kids. And then I watched eight million times when I was growing up and was extremely important to me. Yeah, I guess Rick Moranis has one of the great love songs in that movie, which is Suddenly Seymour. Oh, Suddenly Seymour. Oh. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask what your favorite Rick Moranis movie is. That I mean, that was huge for me. And obviously Ghostbusters. I had both of those, I think, on like the same tape. Oh, one thing we should mention, of course, is that we have a Patreon. Thank you to everyone who has supported us there. Uh, if you are not able to do so right now, because times are obviously weird, that is totally okay. We are releasing bonus conversations there. Uh, occasionally we're answering questions that come in via Patreon. And... Uh, making various pop culture suggestions, et cetera, et cetera. You can get a weekly bonus episode at Patreon at whatever level you contribute. And yeah, we appreciate that support. Like I said, it is uh, very helpful. All right, we should go watch Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Let's do it. doesn't understand your dad. Your dad doesn't understand anything. Nick, what happened? We're all the size of boogers. We have to get dad. He doesn't know what to do. Is he deaf? Don't you get it? We're too small. He can't hear us. It was the ball, wasn't it? You were right. You were brilliant. Dad, 
If you really want me back on the team. I don't care about the team. I care about you. Proud of you. Hello. Let's let's prank some kids. I have so much to ask you. It's such a rich movie, right? Like, were you pleasantly surprised? Every piece of it is rich. The sets are just glorious. And, you know, I think I was saying to you before we started recording that I can't remember... I don't remember watching this movie so many times that it was totally burned into my memory the way that it is. And I certainly did, but I'm also realizing that because of the sets, I saw it so often on those like movie magic TV shows that used to happen, like where they'd break down special effects. Yes. Well, did you ever see, because this made me very nostalgic for like two of the motion simulator rides that I remember riding when... My family went to Disney World when I was in first grade because I remember going on Body Wars, which I thought was the coolest thing I had ever seen. And it wasn't until decades later that I found it. It was famous for giving people motion sickness because I thought it was great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Elizabeth Shue counting white blood cells. Come on. What else does a kid need? And then I remember the Honey, I Shrunk the Audience ride. I went to Disney probably exactly at that same time based on when you said you went. I was 10 and that ride was broken and I was very, very disappointed. It was a really great ride. And what and it gives you the experience of being one of Wayne Zielinski's children because you also get accidentally shrunk. (laughs) So, okay for for people. For people who have, I like that your association is not that you're a shrunken child, it's that you're Wayne Zielinski's child. (laughs) (laughs) You remember being someone else's child. That's what you remember. I was okay. So, like, one of my other big memories of Disney World is going with my dad because we were there because my mom had a conference in Orlando, which I think is how a lot of families that wouldn't otherwise go to Disney World end up going to Disney World. And my dad has not stopped complaining about the lines at Disney World to this day and the trouble he had to go to to, like, take a six-year-old through all these lines. And and I went to Disney World when I was, like, 29, and I remember mentioning it to him, and I knew he would bring this up, (laughs) that we had gone through the line for the Haunted Mansion which cannot have been my idea because I was the biggest scaredy cat in the world as a little kid. Like, I was haunted for years by the parting Batman Returns where Selena puts her stuffed animals into the garbage disposal. And then we got to the front of the line, which is when you start getting a sense of what the ride is going to be like, and I was like, I can't do this. And we didn't go on the Haunted Mansion, and he has never accepted that that is part of parenthood, that you... <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't work And out. then I rode on the Haunted Mansion when I was almost 30, and I was like, thank God I didn't go on this as a little kid because this would have scared the big Jesus out of me. I would have never slept again. The dancing ghosts, are you kidding me? Like, they trick the adult eye. That's why adults care about this stupid ride. Like, it would have destroyed me. So, yeah, I was very ready to be one of Rain Zielinski's children, is my point. <laughs> <laughs> very, very similarly, and I think I've shared this with you outside of this context. My father would rate my friends and family based on how heartily they ate as children. <laughs> 
And so one time, one time we went to, uh, my cousin was up visiting. Uh, my cousin lived in right outside of Boston and she was visiting. She was a year older. And we went to this restaurant in Portland, Maine, which was very metropolitan compared to uh, where, where we lived. And they paid however much money for everyone's meal, which probably in retrospect was like $8 for an entree. And my cousin only ate a, a couple bites of the food. And I remember my father just looking at my mother and going, really? This is how it's going to be? <laughs> and then didn't talk for the rest of the meal. Wow. Yeah. And he would he would also very, very similarly say to friends that he liked them more than other friends of mine because they could eat a full meal. That is classic dad. Yeah. That's like somewhere in like the book of dad. That's like page 731. <laughs> Turning friends against each other. Right, right. And being inconvenienced by children just being children. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess like this, the thing where like, and this was definitely how I remember being raised by my father. Like you would do like a normal kid thing or sort of betray the fact that you were a kid and they'd be like, ah, Christ, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I'm sorry, man, but like... <laughs> I've been reminded. <laughs> For any human being who has not seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, can you do two things? Just one, explain what it is, and two, broadly explain how it relates to dadding. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a beautiful film whose who's premise is really present in the title, which I always appreciate. And so basically, Rick Moranis... <laughs> plays Wayne Zielinski, a nutty professor, inventor guy, whose wife is kind of on the outs with him because he's been working so hard on this shrink ray, he's forgotten to be a husband and a dad. And so what should happen but that his shrink ray should accidentally shrink both his own kids, his daughter and his son, Amy and Nikki, and the neighbor children, Russ and... The kid from Overboard. <laughs> That's his name. <laughs> and in Big. He's also in Big. And he's in Big. Yeah, he had a good run, that kid whose name I forget. Ron. Ron, maybe? It's another R name. Oh, yeah, Ron. Jared Rushton played okay, Ron. Okay, Ron. Yeah, that's such a weird... Isn't it weird that in the 80s there were just kids named Ron? You know, you don't get a lot of that anymore. Yes. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, Brenda. Ron. <laughs> Get over here. Paul. Um, <laughs> and so the shrink ray accidentally shrinks the neighbor kids after Ron throws his baseball through the window and it hits the shrink ray in, in just such a way as to make it finally work somehow. Um, and so what should Professor Wayne Zielinski, genius inventor, do? Maybe he's not even a professor. And what should Wayne Zielinski, genius inventor, do but sweep up his tiny children and throw them in the trash and carry the garbage across the backyard and drop it on the other side of the fence to be picked up. And that, and then that's the entire plot of the movie, really, is that, like, the kids have to get back through the backyard and find their dad and get him to unshrink them. And that's the whole thing. And it's great. The thing I was surprised about with, again, with this movie etched into every ounce of my being, uh, the thing that I had not remembered is all of the figurative dad stuff happens with Wayne and all of the literal dad stuff happens with Russ. So Russ is the next door neighbor who is a man, like like a capital M man, 80s man. He is so much of a man that he is the guy who played Max Headroom. 
So I was looking yes. at him and I was like, that is what I would confidently call a lantern jaw. Like, that is it. <laughs> and I also was watching, I was like, how old is this guy? 50, the, the actor. And I looked it up and he was like 31 when they filmed that, which I find horrifying. I don't know if this is the case, um, but he looks like a guy who around that time in era uh, was was a cast member of the Steppenwolf Theater. <laughs> <laughs> All such unique and intense people. He looks like he fits into that mold. Yes. He has the face of someone in a Dorothy Lang photo. <laughs> he looks like he could have walked out of a picture of a sharecropper. It is hard to express the amount of dad energy that is radiating out of every pore of this man's body. Right. He is. He was a football player and he expects his namesake son. Little Russ. Who looks like a woman to play football as well. Like he wants him to mm -hmm. play football as well. Yeah. He has a son with like beautiful feathers hair and like soft features and who like adolescence is bringing out like beauty and androgyny in and who's like I don't want to play football but I don't want any of that right he's also they're about to go fishing for the weekend Russ is obviously not into it Ron's very into it and his unfortunately his father can't be bothered with how into it he is because his father's so upset Ron is one of those 80s child actors who's like Dad, you know how there's like a whole moment in child actors where they all had that accent? Yes. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it happened. Yeah, and he's and he's and he builds traps. He builds wonderful little mechanisms, you know, that would be very useful if he were tiny, but he's not. He's normal size, so it's inconvenient. An 80s kid <laughs> movie would be nothing without a Rube Goldberg device. <laughs> yeah, it really would. <laughs> So t tell me why you picked this movie. I picked it because we had just done The Squid and the Whale, and that was pretty emotionally intense and, like, barbed, you know, where, like, every scene you're like, ah, you know, it just feels like being very naked and um, you feel everything very intensely, and by the end you're just, like, silently, you know, like, you're so... I mean, it really does actually feel in a way miniature itself because you're so you become so focused on these little scenes these little tense scenes of people dealing with themselves or with each other these sort of these micro moments of self-revelation that when characters kind of get wise at the end it feels really dazzling and just it's a very intense experience and so i was like we need to watch something silly mm. and then i realized that this movie has themes and i cried a lot during it which like i'm not mad about but it, there's definitely more going on than i remember from when i really liked it when i was six well there's much more uh much more resolution in this movie i was just like these kids get small and i like it when when people are smaller than before and when things are of different sizes <laughs> there's there's much more resolution um and it's much less for its benefit because it's a movie geared towards children there's much less nuance about that resolution i like it when everyone says that they've arrived at a resolution <laughs> and they're like wow we have resolved our issues and they make it official by way of a handshake what made you cry i mean i of course i cried about auntie oh which i did not remember the tragedy of that part at all. <laughs> Tell us about Auntie. So every kid in this movie has to go on a journey and across the yard and then with their own stuff. And I think Ron's journey is just that he's like kind of mean 
and, you know, doesn't really show his soft side very readily or well. And then the kids meet Auntie, who's a baby aunt, who's like really big to them because they're a quarter of an inch tall. And they figure out that if they can like get Auntie to let them ride him, then he can take them back to the house much faster. And so they successfully do this. And Ron kind of is like the drover of Auntie. He's like Auntie's rider. Um, and then, <laughs> and then that night they all go to sleep in a Lego. <laughs> and I had forgotten that they sleep in a Lego, and it made me so happy. <laughs> oh my goodness! Because it's just it's so great. It's just why is it that there's something? I'm gonna get back to Auntie, but why is it that there's something so? wonderful to like the child part of my brain or what I call that to myself of the idea of like you draw you lose a Lego in the yard somewhere at some point you're never going to find it again maybe you didn't even notice it and then like one day (laughs) when you're you know when you just so happen to be a quarter of an inch tall like the Lego is there and you can sleep in it and you're each curled up in like those little like tubes where you snap it onto another Lego it's I don't know. There's just something that I love about that. I can't be like, it's funny or it's ironic. It's not any specific thing. It just lights up my pleasure centers to think of tiny kids sleeping in a Lego. Yeah. And so they go to sleep in this Lego and Amy and little teen Russ have kind of a romantic moment. And then the scorpion attacks them, which is the moment when you realize this is definitely set in San Diego or something. And, and Auntie helps to protect them and is fatally wounded by the scorpion. And Ron and Auntie, you know, and Ron is devastated and everyone, you know, and it's really emotional. But I was thinking also that like what I was anticipating and imagining would be even harder in a way was that they would, you know, complete their journey and then they would have to say goodbye to auntie and have this moment of like, we can't make you be a gigantic aunt. I guess they could actually, I would offer a rewrite where they make him like the size of a cat. (laughs) You know, like what if you had just not a human scale ant because it would be too strong, but like... I feel like it would be ill-advised. <laughs> or I don't know, like an ant the size of a canary. So like you can't squish it, but it's not strong enough to like move your car around. You know, there has to be a middle ground. But people have to grow and learn things. But I was I was anticipating... I was anticipating like a difficult emotional moment where they have to say goodbye and be like, we can't stay being this tiny and you can't get big with us. And just, you know, kind of like... It made me think of the kids saying goodbye to Binks and Hocus Pocus, just like accepting that this person or this being, this cat, this aunt that helped you on this journey, like is of another world and you have to move on. Like that was, I think, kind of the the very bittersweet, very adolescent lesson that just like auntie dying <laughs> to protect you kind of saves you from in a way. But it was very emotional. I cried a lot. I was surprised at how, I mean, well, two things. One is this is a movie, again, I'll say it again, burned into my whole being with the exception of Auntie dying. I don't know what I did with that as a child, you know, where I put that as a child. But I, 
I even remember distinctly, we see a lot of scenes where the scorpions, is, like Stinger is being hurled towards Anti. I remember that, but I don't remember him taking sort of the mortal wound. And it feels like, it feels like they probably cleaned up whatever they'd written there because the transition away from them being upset that Anti dies is very quick. It's very... <laughs> It's very abrupt and they transition into it very kind of quickly and weirdly also actually because like Russ and Amy are like kissing for the first time and then a scorpion is attacking them. Oh my God. And it's just like, was this a rewrite? Yeah. Yeah, you just let your guard down once and then and then a scorpion kills your best friend. The but the you know, the, as far as an art goes with Lil Ron uh figuring his stuff out, it is it works it works pretty nicely. But yeah, I, I wonder if I put that away as a child. I wonder if I couldn't touch it. I had no memory of it at all. And it's funny because like the ant showed up and I was like, I remember this ant. Oh, I have no idea of how the ant plot is going to resolve. There were two specific goo-related things that I remembered really well and hadn't thought of in 25 years. So one is where, like, Amy calls a truce with Ron, and then she has, like, goo in her hand when she shakes hands with him. And I remember as a kid not knowing what the word truce meant and thinking that truce was, like putting mud in someone's hand or something like that. Okay. <laughs> sure, like, yes. And it's interesting, too, because Russ is someone whose dad is giving him a hard time for not being masculine in the very specific way that his dad wants, but who's extremely heroic and brave once they're tiny, then, like, he's liberated from the idea that he's too small because he saves Nick from a bee. He saves Amy from, like, this big, gross river of something that she falls into and like rescues her from this slimy crevasse and gives her CPR. And I remembered that part when I was a kid because I think it was the first CPR scene that I'd seen. And I remember that she coughed up a bunch of goo and like had goo all over her. And then watching that this time, it, it made me think of Jurassic Park and how like there was this thing where like if you wanted to do a family action movie, at some point you would have to cover a pretty girl with goo. Yeah, it was really unsettling. What do you think that's about since that's now a fetish? <laughs> I think they just people they noticed a positive response and they kept going with it because like I was just like this and like Lex getting sneezed on it's like it's a lot of goo isn't it I think the background for that and I, I could be wrong outside of humiliation but the background for that is the entire 80s in on Nickelodeon the punchline is a girl gets covered in slime yes the slime oh my god are they still doing slime do well kids are making slime now but are there like shows where you randomly get slimed anymore there have to be right I think the later the you know the later commodification of slime particularly in the 90s was because they could sell it and they kept they kept going right I wonder if now you now you can deal it's DIY if, they, if there's still the draw. Right. If like the, now the slime monopoly has been cracked. Right. Well, the two the two pieces are like young girls online and some adults who make slime and they have millions of views and they're making however much money. And then through fetish videos, like I think that those are the only two places where it exists, which is funny because we all just came up with that as a as a trope when we were children. Right. Because kids love goo of all kinds. Like kids are very interested in texture. Do you qualify the scene where they, they crack into an Oreo like cookie as a, as a as another slime scene or no? I didn't think of it that way, but it does connect to the fact because I remember as a kid, I forget what the title of this show was. Was, but it was basically what's my line for children, right? Um, and they had the kid, little Pete from Pete and Pete, 
was on it a lot. Yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. This was on Nickelodeon. I recall this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Lori Beth Thunberg was on it a lot. Like, because from all that. Yes. 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 Good memory. <laughs> like, why do I know that? I don't know how to do long division. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And Nick was doing some very Disney-like vertical integration where they would have, like, kids who were on multiple shows, and then they would get interviewed in Nickelodeon magazine, which I read cover to cover. And I remember them talking with the kids that were on, you know, the shows where they got slimed, which I'm sure was like a multi-platform thing, and talking about how I remember the kid, if I remember correctly, the kid who played Little Pete and who got slimed on the game show a lot was like, yeah, it tastes like vanilla pudding. And I remember as a kid really wanting to get slimed, honestly. Um, and I still would like to, now that I think of it. Like, it just seemed really great to get slimed. Like, it's like allegedly punishment, but you get to get messy. The adults are inconvenienced. They have to clean it. Like, it's this fun, weird, it's very childlike getting slimed. I think we should slime people on C-SPAN. I think that if you, like, if politicians lie, we should just slime them. Because it's also something that is fun if you don't have too much pride or delusions of dignity, but it's like abject punishment if you're like too adult for your own good. By the way, that show is called Figure It Out. Yeah, Figure It Out. It was great. I loved it. <laughs> as far as like the kids and their the, the kids and their like respective relationships with their dads, what does that look like? So we have Max Headroom's two kids, um, who are the children of Max Headroom and Buffy's mom. <laughs> And despite that, I guess two two regular-looking American boys. And so it feels like Ron isn't getting enough attention from his dad because his dad is so fixated on getting his oldest son to be like him. And Russ is dealing with, you know, the pressures of his dad wanting him to be like himself and, and the fact that, you know, he's already his own person and he's very heroic in his own way and he doesn't need to play football. So we have two boys who are getting short shrift from their dad for kind of the same reason. And then Amy and Nikki, the Zelensky kids, Amy is kind of the parentified oldest child because she's like trying and not doing a great job of cooking breakfast for everybody at the start because, you know, we know their mom has... And this is like, I was impressed they did this in a kids movie from 1989. They're like, yeah, our parents are uh, sleeping in separate houses temporarily. It's, it's going to be fine, but these things happen in families. It might mean something. It might mean something. The kids are clearly processing what's going on a lot better than their parents. And then we have Rick Moranis, who I think I remembered more charitably than he's depicted in this movie, because this movie, speaking of fetishes, also contains a scene where famously Rick Moranis almost unknowingly eats his entire child. (laughs) (laughs) Who's inside a Cheerio. Can you tell me how the transition to that is speaking of fetishes? Because I'm not aware. (laughs) Okay, so do you know about the Vore fetish, Alex? No, enlighten me. Vore is interesting because it, as far as I know, most famously manifested in the case of the guy who found another guy on the internet who wanted to eat him and who was like, I would like to be eaten by someone else and they were both like great we're both getting what we want and then one guy killed and ate the other guy or the guy killed himself and got eaten or something the point is that they uh made an arrangement (laughs) that is very hard (laughs) to like 
pin down the ethics of because it relates to, you know, can an adult human meaningfully consent to be eaten by another person? Like, I think they can, but I also am aware that that maybe, you know, allowing that leads us into a gray area. And like, and for some people, you know, it was hard enough to accept that anyone would want to be eaten or to eat somebody. And then like, what do you do with that? I don't know. It's it's for better minds than my own. And the Reply All episode that talks about uh, <laughs> Constable Frozen getting milkshake ducked for being horny on Maine specifically talks about this and talks about how there are many different iterations of war and at the most extreme end there is literally wanting to eat another person somewhere in the less extreme area of a fetish are people who like just are aroused by the idea of like people getting sort of euphemistically consumed so like i think imagery of people eating like tiny versions of other people is relatively common love it can you spell it i don't know v-o-r-e vor v-o-r-e yeah like omnivore carnivore got it This has been very enlightening. Yeah, and so that's, you know, inevitably a part of this conversation about Rick Moranis' Irv. And then, of course, Little Shop of Horrors is a movie where a plant is consuming entire human beings. So Rick Moranis has really given people a lot, potentially, in that community. I don't know. I'm not part of it, but I can see... I can see how his work has some themes. But yeah, I mean, that's the iconic image of, of the movie. Um, or there's, there's a few iconic images, but like that one is really played up in the trailer. And I remember it being kind of, it's one of the shorthands for it you think of. There's like a kid stuck in a Cheerio, or he's not stuck in it, but he's like in it like an inner tube. And he's like in a spoon full of cereal. And to me, it is like this very emotionally accurate representation of what it's like to be a child. And as I've been spending time with my parents, you know, and and living with them this summer, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's stuff that you cannot hear from me. Like, you cannot. Like, I can get my best verbal abilities working and I can figure out what's going on for me emotionally and communicate it extremely clearly. And you will, like, not hear it. Or, like, you'll hear it, but it won't go in, and, like, it can just bounce right off, and it won't matter. And one of the themes of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is that because the kids are so tiny, their parents not only can't see them, but can't hear them. So, like, even if they're, if, you know, even if you're right there, like, your dad can't necessarily hear you screaming for him not to eat you. And there's just something about childhood that really, to me, resonates, you know, where you're just like, I feel like a lot of childhood, you're like, please don't step on me. And they're like, I can't hear you. So I'm I'm gonna. Right. And to take that to a logical next step, what happens in that scene is the only way that the father is able to hear them is is through this like form of acting out where the dog bites the father, right? Because the dog can hear the kids. The dog bites the father. I mean, very similarly, when, you, when you're a kid and you feel like your parents can't hear you, usually you just do something ridiculous or insane what looks to be ridiculous or insane in order to get their attention. Or like the dog starts acting out and people are like, why is the dog acting out? And the dog is like, I register emotion, unlike you bastards. (laughs) The vibe in here is thick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm alerting you to the fact that you're going through something, you idiots. (laughs) It's funny that you... You kind of at least misremember Rick Moranis or or how he's portrayed because another thing that I realized about this movie is how little I remember Rick Moranis at all. I mean, I if I if I remember him at all, and and I 
am probably doing something I imagine you're doing a little bit as I'm just projecting like a, you know, booyah base of Rick Moranis onto the character. Like yes. I remember everything Rick Moranis has ever been in and just kind of project the mean of that onto this guy. And this is actually one of his least endearing characters in a way because he's the movie that I watched over and over again when I was a kid and remember very clearly and still watch a lot is Little Shop of Horrors where Rick Moranis is just this like adorable very pure hearted also a murderer but like <laughs> my idea of Rick Moranis at peak lovability is is also a bit ethically complex but he's someone who like doesn't come off as a careless father and we see him being visualized um, by Audrey in this future where they're going to have kids together. And he's like very attentive and not just in the attic working on a shrink ray the whole time. Um, but that's, you know, that's the fantasy of, of child rearing versus the reality at times is that some, you can't anticipate the shrink rays. And so in, the, in this movie, it's funny because one of the things I remember, uh, the images I remember, which is kind of a boring moment, but I remember the moment where he's like taking some of the components out of this cat clock that they have to work on rebuilding the shrink ray to bring the kids back to normal size. But like, yeah, so his character is just pretty oblivious. Like he doesn't realize that the kids have been shrunk. He doesn't hear them when he sweeps them up and puts them in the trash. And then to his credit, he figures it out a few hours later because of the tiny couch. Right, because something of his is different. Yes, because he had a thinking couch. He has a special couch and that got shrunk too. And he's like, oh my God. And then he does figure it out and he figures out that the kids have like cut their way <laughs> out of the garbage bag with Ron's teeny tiny pocket knife. And then, you know, is like working on trying to spot them and like rigs up a, a device so that he can like hang over the grass and, you know, look for them with a magnifying glass and like tries to be helpful, but like is never actually helpful. I think it's also important that like he never does anything helpful. <laughs> So going back, I mean, the reason I brought up he realizes it when something of his goes missing is because that feels pretty on the nose, right? Is like he he knows his kids are missing and like it's kind of a problem, but he doesn't realize what may have happened until like something something of his own physical property is affected, and then he's able to like reverse engineer what happened. Whereas when the the mom comes home and he kind of outlines outlines everything that he knows at that point, you can kind of see her immediately do the math and figure something is more wrong than he is letting on he doesn't yet register how bad the situation is because he's very occupied with his own shit still the kids from next door are like we got to get back in time to go fishing with our dad because that's the primary concern right now like we don't want to be late for this fishing trip the parents concerns are like still the most important thing after the adults have accidentally shrunk you. And and also, like, the kids have this, like, absolute faith that the adults are going to be able to unshrink them, which they do, you know, they, they do at the end because it's a Disney movie. Right. Imagine the Cronenbergian film where <laughs> in which we learned that the adults weren't up to the entire time and continued to be. In one way or another, there's this continued shared tension between the dads and the kids where ultimately the thing standing in the way of... Of both like physical harmony and in like family harmony is like the dads are just too self-absorbed to see their children. Yeah. Both are 
incredibly absorbed in their own hobbies in in selves and in substantiation of like value based on like the hobby and how it relates to their idea of themselves to see their kids in in Nick and Ron are very similar in that they're trying to like emulate their fathers like they're really trying to be their fathers and regardless that pays off for neither of them because their dads still don't see them it's a worse payoff you know like they try and try to be their dads and their dads can't see them kind of like walt in in squid and the whale so it's it's like a double negative payoff where where not only are you just like not being yourself as a means of being of seeing your dad i mean being seen by your dad you don't get seen anyway. And Nick is also the better scientist in this movie because he's the one who's like, he notices things instantly. And he's like, I know he's one of those like small, older children playing a younger kid probably, but he looks like he's five years old. (laughs) (laughs) And he's very funny. He's very funny. Yeah, he has a ton of attitude. Like he's a great... Like one of those like sassy little kid characters who's like not annoying somehow, which doesn't happen all that much. And he just picks this. He picks stuff up immediately. Like there's a part I love where he like ends up dropped in this big flower and they're like, Nick, your allergies. And he's like, the pollen is too big. And then like he does sneeze a little bit, but he's like, oh, no, it's I've I've thought about how big the pollen is in relation to me. And I've t- taken that into account. And he's the one who's like, this is how big we are. And so this is so the distance to the back door is the equivalent of 3.2 miles for us. And like he's the one who's kind of like narrating what they have to do. And like like he's really I love that they made like the youngest child the one who's kind of figuring everything out. And like the dad is, is, you know, the scientist dad he's trying to emulate is figuring stuff out, but extremely slowly and in a way that isn't very helpful. Right. And the other father in another classic form is just refusing for for understandable reasons, considering where we were with science in 1989 or 1990 <laughs> or whatever, but is is refusing to believe what the situation is. And, and that's kind of a theme in his life is that he's he's unable to like hear what is being told to him to the point where his wife has to take him and we never see the conversation, but basically say, I have to tell you a couple some things about yourself. Yeah. And then that's where his arc starts to change. The varying ways that the parents don't, or the fathers in particular, don't listen to their children is is is, <laughs> is both resonant and interesting. Yeah. And how the moms are the one whose role it is to be like, listen, honey, I am aware of what's going on and you're being an idiot. You know, <laughs> and so like the the dad needs like um an emotional helper in the household to like help him like slowly clue into what's going on, or else he's like not gonna get there. Is the implication? Right, right. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that that is the place where this feels most dated. And it's not to say this archetype obviously doesn't exist anymore, but it's so pronounced these parts where the moms ultimately just have to reconcile that their their husbands are stupid. <laughs> yeah. And give them space to be stupid and then have faith that eventually they'll stop being so stupid and see the actual situation before them. And then we get at the end, Russ sacrifices himself or potentially sacrifices himself by offering to be the test case to see if they can shrink and then unshrink somebody, which works. And then he comes back a little, tiny bit smaller. <laughs> and do you remember that? He like goes to put his hat on. 
when I asked you what themes we should be looking at, you you mentioned that. Why does that stand out to you? I, you know, something I think about a lot as a woman who's six foot one is that, like, as humans, we are fascinated by the extremely minute differences in size between us. We're like, imagine a human being who weighs 80 pounds more than another human being. And it's like, that's such a small amount of matter, you know, but like this is a distinction that will make someone's entire life different in America based on how they're treated or like women who are like five foot one versus six foot one, like you get treated potentially completely differently in society and in terms of the expectations people have for you and how people, what people expect of you. And it's amazing because it's like not a big difference in size. It's like all humans in the scheme of things are essentially the same size. (laughs) It's just amazing to me. And so I love that, you know, in a very clear way, like we're told that one of the themes of this movie is that Russ is small. He's too small for football. He's smaller than his dad. He's called Little Russ. There's Little Russ and Big Russ rather than Russ Sr. and Russ Jr. And we know that and Rick Moranis is like a... Probably the smallest dad of the 80s. (laughs) He always plays these small characters in a way that directors actually seem to like to play up by pairing him with like statuesque women like Sigourney Weaver and uh, Ellen Green in Little Shop of Horrors. And Casey Kasem's wife, who he dances with in that scene in Ghostbusters. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this movie could be called Big Dad, Small Dad. But the, but the answer in the end is that they're both small emotionally and their children, no matter how tiny, are emotionally big. We should watch Big next. <laughs> oh, absolutely. One thing I know I'll want us to watch at some point is a selection of Saved by the Bell episodes. There is an episode in which the entire drama in the show is that Jesse, who is played by Elizabeth Berkley, who's you know, statuesque, a boy who likes her is shorter than her. That's the drama. Fred, he's adorable. He's nice. He's a shrimp. (laughs) So he's kind of short. And I'm kind of tall. And when you put us together, we look kind of stupid. Date is off. Hmm. I should watch that one. That'll be good for me. (laughs) Did you pick up the fact that it seems that Russ Sr. is trying to push creatine or something on his son? Yes. Does he want to end up with like a Ben Affleck kid? And like that, you know, with the Ben Affleck... uh, the steroids movie that scared us all so much. What is that? Not school days. What is that? I don't know, but it's something where he, it might have been a TV movie. He like gets hooked on steroids and he like, you know, he gets all, all mad and strong and it doesn't go well. Carolyn was watching the scene with me and, you know, Russ says, so what do you want to be? And Carolyn says, why does he have to know? And then Russ just very casually responds, I don't know yet. And it's interesting that it's handled so Cavalierly and obvious that in the long run, the father is like, in in the meantime, you have to take what appear to be uh, drugs that'll change your size. It's funny because there, you know, later on, maybe five or six years later, Varsity Blues comes out and the entire tension in the movie is that same exact tension is about like football and living someone else's life and not wanting to live someone's life. But it's so much more melodramatic than it's involved in this movie. This movie's all subtext. Watching this movie made me think, like, why did we not have a wave of movies about people who get tiny? Because I could have watched 50 of them. Like, I feel like something that kids really like, I think, and that a lot of adults must like also, but maybe we don't like to admit it as much, is just, like, premise and complication. Like, the kids are tiny. They're in the backyard. 
that is it. Like, there's so much you can do with that. There's so much that they didn't even get to. But they're like, there's an ant, there's a bee, Nick falls in a flower, there's like a river that's really big because they're so tiny, there's like a Lego they sleep in, there's a cookie that they eat. The trope is is more or less similar to like Freaky Friday or the movies where the dad and the son change you know, like the dad's the dad's somehow consciousness is in the son and the son's consciousness is in the dad and 13 going on 30 and like things like that where kids are now in like a foreign, a totally foreign universe and have to understand that universe. Like that seems to be the larger trope. Right. That is a constant. Yeah. And I guess specifically love tiny people. <laughs> You're a big miniatures fan. I'm a big miniatures fan. And I realized also that like I might be even more charmed by the concept of like if I were tiny, what would be really big? Like either big things getting small or small things getting big. Like I, I again and it's one of those things where it almost feels like a fetish where like I don't feel aroused by this, but I'm like so powerfully drawn to it. I'm like, I don't know why I just feel this way. Do you know about the collection that's called, like, the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things? <laughs> no, but I love that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's made for you. So, okay, what is the resolution? Where where do we land uh, and how realistic is it? <laughs> okay, so the resolution is that the kids battle their way across the entire yard. They find Auntie. They lose Auntie. They grieve Auntie. And then we have like a final situation where, and I remember when I realized that this had been like set up and it was going to happen. And I was like, oh my God, it's very dramatic. So before they got small, Nick, in a very Tom Sawyer way, tricked a neighbor kid into mowing the lawn for him with the like fancy Zelensky, you know, kooky uh, lawnmower. And so just as the kids are getting close to the edge of the lawn, the neighbor kid comes by to mow the lawn. Oh, no. <laughs> and I think the parents don't hear it initially. Yeah, they're really clueless about it. They're like, that sounds like something. What could it be? <laughs> and Rick Moranis is like, no, it's more like a lawnmower. <laughs> And so they have to save the kids from the lawnmower, which they don't do. The kids get sucked into the lawnmower and then they just happen to get like spit out unharmed because they're like too small. Why all this drama about this thing and it ends up happening anyway and not being a problem? That's a good lesson. That your parents can't help you. Particularly your fucking dad. <laughs> I was actually, I was talking to people on Twitter the past few days about just like, it's really interesting to me that there was this thing in the early 90s that I think culture has moved so far beyond that it feels very archaic now of like the Simpsons being considered very dangerous and subversive and like families who let their kids watch shows like Married with Children and stuff were like, no Simpsons, which kind of makes sense because Al Bundy was effective as a tyrant in some ways and Homer Simpson was not. And like... From what people have said about this, it seems like some adults were pretty explicit about, like, if my kids watch The Simpsons, then they will start behaving like Bart, and they will catch Bartism, and then what? And The Simpsons also started in 1989, you know, and, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is also about a completely ineffectual dad whose very young child is also much smarter than him, it would seem. 
um, at least about the present situation. And it feels like <laughs> adults who are censoring the Simpsons and media like that from their children, like pushing against this door from which was threatening to pour this avalanche of evidence of like American dads are incompetent and you shouldn't listen to them, you know. Um, and so the kids, they do get into the house by hitching a ride on their dog, Quark, and holding on to his fur. And then they get onto the kitchen table that way. And then we have our cereal bowl standoff. And then once Rick Moranis realizes he was about to eat his child, he and their mom are like, it's the kids, they're here. Uh, and then they bring them back up to normal size. And right, they, right before they got un shrunken Amy and Russ hold hands and decide to go to the dance together very nice and then and then in a in a postscript we see that they uh, make eyes at each other over a giant turkey <laughs> right so they have figured out how to make things slightly bigger and presumably also slightly smaller and what's actually you know what's nice is that I can see another movie very easily being like, and now we can make Russ slightly bigger and everyone's problems are solved. And it's like, no, Russ is, is as big as he wants to be. Right. Well, the, in the resolution, it, again, very nice and tidy in the antithesis of, say, The Squid and the Whale and other movies I'm sure we will watch, uh, is the dad's kind of get unfucked. Rick Marianis realizes that he's, pardon the expression, but too far up his own ass uh, to be not just like a good dad, but a good husband, a good member of the family. He's not a good member of the family. You know, actually in the same progression, we see Russ through the advisory of his extraordinarily patient saint like wife come to the realization that again he is too much the center of his own attention to see anything around him to hear anything around him and that has helped lead to this problem and that's lovely because that's not often the thing that we see happen <laughs> it's a movie where the parents are scared straight like i really love these movies about teaching your parents a lesson and it working. Like, I just watched The Parent Trap last night, and I was, like, remembering how when I was a kid, uh, before I saw it, I assumed, based on the title, that it was about kids who literally trapped their parents in some kind of a, like, G-rated saw trap and, like, forced them to deal with their own shit, because apparently that was what I wanted to do. And then I was like, oh, they tricked them into getting married to each other again. <laughs> That's good, too. But <laughs> a lot of like great childhood movies are, are, are about one of two things. One, about a bunch of like kids who otherwise wouldn't get along learn how to get along through an adversarial situation, which is what we see in this movie as well. But then also, um, you know, parents learn a lesson. Yeah, and just the fact of like the idea of your dad. I mean, this is the ultimate fantasy component. Like people can get all kinds of weird sizes in the not-too-distant future, I'm sure. But, like, when will science create a dad <laughs> who can acknowledge and grow from his mistakes? Show me that, NASA! <laughs> all right, I can think of no better place to end on that. Uh, we know who the dads are. Who's the daddy? <laughs> I'm afraid the daddy might be underage. <laughs> It might be auntie. Yeah. That's a great point. Very loyal, very strong, looking out for the kids' best interests. I think one of the important things about auntie 
that I think the the Disney Imagineers did very well on this is that they made a giant ant really cute. And I think they achieved that partly because ant he makes these adorable like tribble noises. Like he he kind of purrs and coos, you know, and he likes to be pet. Very loyal. We'll defend you till the death. We'll save you from a scorpion. We'll do more for you than your own dad ever did. And and we'll have no expectations of the kind of child he expects you to be. <laughs> Ante for president. I love how they make they make him adorable in all the ways that you just said and, and I agree entirely. And still it eats through the weirdest orifice which is, I'm sure, is just real to an ant or whatever. But when they shove <laughs> cookie in that ant's mouth, and it's not, it's whatever those things, mandibles, it is a weird, like, kind of furry orifice on its face. I was in shock that I could still love that thing after. <laughs> and that's why Auntie's the daddy. <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of Why Our Dads. Thank you for joining us for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. We want to thank Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode and creating the audio montage at the front end of the episode. Thank you to Nilesh Maharaj, otherwise known as Funky Fresh Lesh, for producing some of the music in this episode. Take care of yourself this week. It is... uh, (laughs) Continues to be stressful, unpredictable, and weird, more so than I think a lot of us hoped. Join us next week. We will finally get to our conversation with Talia Lavin about Borat 2, otherwise known as Borat subsequent movie film, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even know what the full title of the Borat sequel is, but we're finally going to touch upon that. We thought maybe it was a little too heavy to touch that a Borat movie was a little too heavy to touch this week uh, (laughs) because of how uh, rooted in reality it is. So we, uh, we shrunk some kids or we hung out with some shrunk kids. Thank you all so much for listening. Join us on social media. Find us there. Participate in the conversation. I don't know. That's about it. Oh, you know, it's been a while since we have asked you to rate and review the show if you have not already and that's a thing that uh i don't know if it's important but other podcasters who have uh credibility ask you to do that sort of thing so i'm gonna do that same thing (laughs) please rate and review the show if you've not done so already all right that's enough from me um you know if you can drink some tea and relax today or uh you know just take it easy on the doom scrolling that's it so long (laughs) 